Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Satnam Rana talks to Michael Wassifer-Brown, who, as a teenager, set up the Wassifer Sound System in Handsworth in 1972 and who this year celebrate their 50th anniversary. Michael uses music as a platform to uplift, motivate and empower communities. Satnam asks about Michael's love of music and what Birmingham means to him. When I was doing my uh, research, at the end of it I thought, do you know what? Life is blessed with many souls, and then every so often an extra special one comes along. And I think that's how I describe you and your accomplishments to date. A teenage venture, a way of life in service to your music and to your community, and this year celebrating 50 years of the Wasifa sound system. How epic is that, ladies and gentlemen? And life is blessed because you have used your passion to uplift us through music, motivate generations of communities, and most importantly, empower them. And that's just fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about you and the person behind all this wonderful work that has been happening over the last five decades. Really, really looking forward to it. We're going to sort of hopefully go through a bit of a journey. And I'd like to start from the beginning. So where were you born? Good evening, good night, depending <laughs> on where you come from. I was born in Birmingham at a Maston Green Hospital. So a true Brummie, um, <laughs> yes. but your heritage? Uh, Jamaican, yes. Okay. My parents came from Jamaica. So tell us a little bit about your family then, um, and sort of where you grew up in uh, Birmingham. They had come... From Jamaica. From Jamaica in the 50s. Uh-huh. The clusters like the Windrush generation. So I'll be first generation that was born here. My parents was born in St. Catherine, just outside Spanish town. Um, Luida's Bell. So my people are from the countryside, basically. So they came over in the middle 50s. My dad came about 54, 55. My mom came over about 1957. So I'm one of eight children so I've got six sisters and one brother oh my goodness and bit outnumbered <laughs> yeah, and I'm the third youngest in the family so for basically four of my sisters were born in Jamaica my brother was born in 1959 he was the first one in the UK I was second then I've got two sisters behind me and how was that then growing up in a family where you really had um two very different beginnings in life okay. I mean Birmingham is completely opposite to the beautiful countryside of Jamaica, let's mm-hmm. be honest. It was good. I didn't really go back to Jamaica until in the 80s. Yeah, but we always kept in contact through letters, photographs from my elder sisters, giving us information. My dad and my mom went back and forth because clearly they left four children over there to come over here to work at that time and started a family. I was told that originally it wasn't about staying in the UK but they started to have families, so they were based in the UK. They never forgot about my sisters out there. Two came over later on when I was at, um, at junior school, and uh, two still lives in Jamaica. It was good. 
because we grew up in the traditional Jamaican household and Jamaican culture, all the morals, you know, from church to education that was pushed through to us continuously, you know, and we always had a close contact via letters or phone calls from our grandparents. So it kind of kept us on the straight and narrow. So it was a good, it was a good look. And how was that relationship then with your siblings? Obviously, you've got some of them here, some of them in Jamaica. Yeah. You well, don't have WhatsApp in those days or no. FaceTime or anything like that. It's, it's one of those ironic things. I think um, I didn't really recognise it when I was young until I was a teenager that a lot of the Jamaicans that was born, it was a consistent thing across the Caribbean. And it was stories that I heard at school. And all of us were kind of living the same kind of thing that the ones that was born in Jamaica thought we over here was privileged and we weren't really, but they just thought it because they looked at the UK as some rich empire and it wasn't according to what our parents said. That's what they thought when they came here. It was dull, it was grey, it was wet and damp and that's nothing like what they were feeling in Jamaica. And that was the stories that was coming from my aunties, cousins that was from Jamaica, living in the UK at that time in the 60s. And it is a story that's echoed um, through families all over, isn't it? In your family, that must have instilled a whole load of resilience, I'm guessing? It did. It gave us that zeal because we had to kind of fight for what we needed, not as siblings, but out in the world. Because with education at school, we were never taught about our positive heritage and things like that. It was always that we were savages, slaves and that. But we are a nation that was enslaved. We weren't slaves and we were never taught that. So a lot of things was more negative. And when we used to go to school, we had to, especially at secondary school, because my junior school was just across the road in Answorth. So we only had to go about 10 yards, to be honest, because it's just literally across the road. But when we were going to secondary school in Lozell's Newtown, we had to fight to go to school and fight to come back home. And when I say fight, we're fighting skinheads, teddy boys and things like that. So when we hear stories later on in life, like in the 90s and 2000 to now, it was like black people don't like education. We did because we had to fight to get that education and be chased where you get beat up or knifed. And that was in the 60s. And that was real stories for us. So we walked in groups to go to school, come back from school. If we were going to the shop, we were in pairs and things like that because it was never really a safe environment at that time. But we needed education and we needed to get that paper to say that we can do. So we went through that. And that is sheer resilience. And I, I know coming from my South Asian background that my uncles also talk about the skinheads chasing them down the street. Um, but also at the same time, the importance of education instilled in us um, is part of our DNA because I guess at the end of the day, parents, grandparents uprooted and came to a rather wet and dreary yeah. country yes. from our wonderful, colourful countries of mm -hmm. heritage um, to create a better future for us, yes. for us. You've given us a little bit of insight into your, your, your later years, but as a boy, what sort of boy were you? Were you a, a shy boy, a loud boy, a <laughs> naughty boy? I was, and I still am, I'm shy. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, that, that's real, by the way, I am shy. But I was kind of a mischievous person. I like looking at <laughs> them laughing. I was mischievous. I got some of my daughters <laughs> in the crowd so um I was mischievous I was a playful person 
you know. Uh, <laughs> at school, I was actually small, one of the small ones. So uh, the boys was kind of always my friend because the girls would always be looking after me, innit? So because I was small and unique, according to them, <laughs> um, the boys had to kind of protect me at the same time because the girls were always around me, if you want to put it that way. So are you saying that you were quite a charmer and into your little, um, and the girls liked you? Is that what you're trying to say? Daughters, just cover your I'm ears. Not... <laughs> I think it would work out that way, but that wasn't my main intention. Yeah, but it was a, it was a nice little um, byproduct of being small, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't really grow till I left school. So yeah, it was, it was a good look. It was a good look. What did you enjoy then when you were younger in those school days? Um, were you into your music right from the beginning? Yeah, the music was always part of our culture and identity because of the music that was coming out of Jamaica. But I think I'm going to go into that a little bit later. But at school, I liked sports. I don't know, captain of the basketball team, the running team. I was a right winger because clearly I was fast. So I was the one that was always cross, crossing the ball across for the centre forward to get the goals. And we seemed to always win the matches. Um, basketball, we probably was about third in the league. Oh, my road manager's team always slaughtered us when it came to basketball. <laughs> Jama is out there in the audience. So he went to a grammar school, even though we all went to junior school. But he was the one that went to a grammar school and I went to a conference, like many of us. But he's the one that still manages us till this day. Oh, fantastic. So that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so, that's loyalty, isn't yeah, it? So that's we've loyalty. Been to, we've been together from infant school, you know. That camaraderie that you have, how important is that for you in terms of, um, you know, the changing times? It's important because we've got a basic foundation that we all grew up in the same area, same type of education, even though he went to grammar school. But he also had to fight to go out of Answorth area into Edgebaston. So he faced the same type of thing. The stories that was coming back in the evening, especially when we were congregating to talk about music, what we wanted to do in our teenager days, like age 11, 12. It was always the same type of story. So we know that it wasn't just people that lived in Answorth that was facing it. That was really within, you know, a mile of us. It was all over the city, you know, because back then, Answorth people seemed, especially the men, were the ones that was going all over Birmingham. The other areas kind of stayed in their area. But Answorth men always went out and about into different areas. I'm really intrigued, those discussions that you used to have with each other back then. What, what was, was that it? like? Yeah. It was good because it was about sports. It was about our identity because culture played a lot. In the 70s, 60s and 70s, culture was very, very important. And it's nothing like what happens now because you probably think now at the age of 11 when we all started, 11 and 12, if I look at my grandchildren that age now, it looked like they're babies to be thinking of what we were thinking then. But you didn't have all the gimmicks that they've got now. So you had to go out and if I wanted a bike, we'd get an old frame, buy some wheels somewhere else and put, make that bicycle. We made go-karts, just like our speaker boxes. We, we made them, we didn't go to the shop and buy them. So the baffle boards, we had to cut the circle out and we made, um, say, a map of Africa and sold it so people can put it on the wall. Or we'd make a table out of the waste wood to get some more money to circulate, just like the Pops buckle. You could bring back the Pops buckle back in the day to the shops and get some change. Get 10 pence. I'm yeah. old enough to remember so that. That was <laughs> where we got the money to buy our music and stuff. So you had to be smart. 
you know, I'm a generation on and we have had it easy because you've almost fought our battles for us to pave the way for us to have easier access to a lot of facets of life from music right through to culture and politics and, and, and so the list goes on. So, you know, huge gratitude for the barriers that you guys have, um, have smashed for us. Yet they still remain, let's be honest, the fight carries on through generations. It's just a different type of fight. How do you balance then now your family and your work? What about now? What's family life like now? Um, family life is very good. We keep the balance because it's something that you have to do to strive for good rather, you know, than just sit down and moan. You've got to go out not, and in a cap, you've got to just go and show people that you can do. You know, and then other people and the family will learn from that. And we always encourage conversations and, you know, communication with each other for growth. And we, as I said before, we're from the old Jamaican type of liberty. So it's like, it takes like a whole village to raise a family. And we kind of work like that. So it's not just my parents who owns and controls and delivers to us. It's the whole community. And we embrace that. And my children and grandchildren grow that way and they would hopefully be respectful to adults and other people from other cultures and nations same way too often people look at differences and not the the similarities when it comes to um, our diverse cultures in the city and certainly to be able to bring up a family with that ethos is actually i don't think it's an option it's it should be absolutely mandatory because we live in such a multi-ethnic city with such a diversity of people and a diversity of thought as well so to embrace that is, is beautiful we talked about school what about outside school then what were you doing at outside school you know you it was sport in school was the music coming from the outside and if it was where was it coming from okay music as i said our parents brought music from jamaica and things a lot of things was music was sent across as i said before we weren't taught at school all the music that was coming from Jamaica was telling us about our identity, culture, the positiveness, things about Marcus Garvey, things about Malcolm X, things about um, anyone that you want to think of from Egyptology to the Israelites. It's, it was embracing everything, so that was important. So with playing that music, we said to ourselves at that young age, this is what we want to do, be one of the better sounds, because we were following different sound systems, because there's a lot of sound systems in front of us, like a Quaker at the time, Massigan. You had Bismarck, you had Naya. My brother was with Naya before he joined us later on. So these sounds were in kind of encouraged us. And then as young people, we looked at what they were doing and said, OK, we want to be a better entertainer, because it's, it's, it's a little battle between all the sounds. So you got to have that notch that what will make people gravitate. So from that young age, we said, okay, because I had, as I said, lots of girls around me, my sisters and then their friends. We said, if we encourage them to come to the parties that we were playing at, the men will come and then more girls will come. And, you know, so we kind of kept it like that. Plus, even though we came up from the roots and culture side of things, we were playing the soul, lovers rock. We was even playing some pop music at that time because we were at school. So we used the school discos. We went to the church church halls well we actually started in the cellar and that's where that was our stomping ground and that's where we had all of our practicing with the music and see what people were reacting to before we went out and delivered when did you first become aware of sound systems oh it was something that was always talked about in the household because it's a jamaican type thing you know like what our 
parents left in Jamaica, so they were grounded in it. But at that time, a lot of our community couldn't get into venues and we weren't allowed to get into venues for many different reasons. And it's discrimination and it will come back down to racism. And this is what we need people to understand why we had shoe beans and blues parties in the houses, not because it was like our first choice. It's because we had no option to get our little downtime when it came to weekend. So we had parties in the back room or the front room. At one stage, it wasn't really the front room. That was kind of untouchable space, you know. It was... Um, All covered in plastic, yeah? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's back room and the cellar. Okay. If you had a, one of those, like my parents, who had the old house, you know, the, um, it had a cellar to the attic, you know, so it's like four floors. So people, like, we started in the house opposite myself, my friend Errol Mitchell, his household. His dad was a pastor. But we were allowed to play music downstairs in his cellar. As long as we weren't being rude, but the culture and the identity music, they worked with us with that. So I'm just like trying to draw a picture. Then how many people were coming um, together on, I'm I'm guessing this was like the weekends. Yeah. (laughs) And let's be honest, they're they're not mansions, are they? No, No, because it's called close contact and stuff like that. (laughs) That's what it was, though, isn't it? Imagine doing it in COVID times, hey? (laughs) Nah, COVID, uh, (laughs) luckily it didn't exist. Everything would have been mashed up So you were pretty close up with all those girls that were turning up, yeah? uh, Let me first say, education is very important. That was the first thing. Right? That's always important. And I've got to say that now. And because I'm a teacher, I will always say education is very important. So, yeah. But within that education space in your mind, you've got to know how to behave and present yourself decently. You know? Well, it's, it's a good thing. Did you ever imagine that when you set up Wasifa, which I think, how old were you? You were about 14, were you? Those, uh, 13, 14? Some of us was, I was uh, one of the younger ones. We were mostly in the same age, 12, I said the average of us, 12-year-olds. It blows my mind because 12-year-olds today setting up effectively a club night. Can you imagine it? It was I mean. because if you look at what happens in Jamaica, a lot of the young singers from Dennis Brown, Greg Isaac, they all started at junior school ages and teenagers. So it was a thing with reggae. Before that, it was you had the scattered blue beat, mento and all that kind of stuff, rock steady. But everyone starts young in Jamaica, so it's a Caribbean thing, it's a feel, good factor, and it just came over here. Did you ever imagine the impact that the Wasifa sound system would have on British black culture? Uh, British culture? Back then, no, it's just something that we always talked about. We would need and wanted to be one of the best ones recognised for culture identity but also entertain within all of that space you know and so who influenced you the most back then then back then oh gosh lots of people my uncles uh the pastor that was opposite because if we didn't have grow with the pastor that was opposite us we didn't grow with our mom and our dad at that time we were doing things and all my friends that was with us we all kind of grew as a unit because a lot of us went to scouts as well so it wasn't no one thing so we learned about other people's culture even though we had a fight and we weren't taught the positive things about black people we were going to scouts we were, i grew up in the church of england most of my family's from the church of god the caribbean type thing all right so i had several different hats on so i embraced personally a bit of everything 
And because I was running for Birchfield areas and the English schools, I and scouts went camping. So I was integrating at the same time, even though I came from Answorth and we had that struggle and that fight. But during that journey, I learned a lot about other cultures. And do you think that's helped you in your musical career to sort of um, have an appreciation of the, the multifaceted communities that we do have? Yes, definitely. I think Birmingham lends to that very much. And my friends were the same as myself. That was in the sound. All of us kind of grew that same way. Even though everyone used to say, I don't want to go to Answorth. It's full of this. It's gangster. It's, it's the ghetto. It's not. Actually, Answorth was one of the most influential areas in the city. Because there was other areas, but I'm not going to say which areas that was worse than Answorth. It's only because at the time a lot of black and Asians was living in Answorth at that time. They said it was a ghetto, but it was actually a lot better. The houses are more solid. The houses was clean. If you went to Answorth back in the 60s and 70s, all the steps were polished and we had to polish it. You know, say every weekend yeah. we'd done the shopping. We'd done, we we learned Ever what our parents came from the Caribbean with, we learnt it and we passed that on. I still think Handsworth, okay, it's a bit muckier than those clean, lovely cafes yeah, that you cleaned up. Then, but, yeah. but actually, Handsworth still has that quality of um, community. Yes, community. it definitely does, yeah. And, and, and I don't think that'll ever go. It'll, it, you know, communities nah. come and go, mm -hmm. but the sense of community is, um, it's core really, isn't yes, it? Yes, definitely, most definitely. Uh, it's sad that a lot of people are frightened because of stereotyping and bad press going into Answorth, because it's a home of many cultures and it's so diverse that just take the time out and you go down there and you talk to people, they're more welcoming than you go to another area. Totally agree. It is a beautiful part of our city. Who influenced you then um, to become a frontman? I wasn't a frontman, you mean for the sound system? Yeah, yeah, for the sound system. Oh, it was just something that happened over time. I was, from day one, I was always the selector for the sound so you're kind of in the background playing the music and all that stuff so that's what I was to get to that point to become the selector for the sound we used to challenge each other who played the better music or selected or it wasn't necessarily playing the music you had to name it oh my you goodness. know by memory okay and then there was a vote that each of us had to vote to say yeah that person got it or didn't get it and the back end of that I became the selector this went on this was a continuous thing actually but I was the selector uh, as time went on, I more became the face that everyone kind of recognised more. I think it was probably in the 90s, so it's kind of late on, because we started in 72. In the 80s, the front people were our MCs, Maccabee, Patabantan, Bitsy McLean, Apache Indian, who grew up around, you know, all these kind of things. Uh, Maccabee was from Warburton, Patu, Birmingham, Apache, Answorth, Birmingham, Bitsy McLean, Chemsleywood, Solly, all side. You know, and then we had Mikey Tough, Daddy B, Spain. These were classed as the frontmen because they were the mic, the MCs, the chanters. And that's so all we were the selector. I was the selector. Then you had someone that was operating the sound. Then you had our road manager, Jamai, who was our engineer. And he kind of styled out how the sound was supposed to sound and play, if that makes sense. Combinating with what I was selecting. And then we dictated how our MCs will come in, when they should come in, when they shouldn't. Then we became more diverse with music, even though we grew with a variety of music. But to get the bigger crowds, we were more diverse, more than most of the sounds, because they tend to stick with reggae from Jamaica. Even if they're not Jamaicans, they tend to stick with more reggae. But it's a smaller crowd, but we were interested in that. So what did you do then? We just played that we're going to get the biggest crowd. 
leading on from that, we played at places like Wembley, and we're the only sound to play because we're suitable. And we played at the NIA. We played at most of the festivals back then, so that's how we got to and play. And you just like, your list is like the royalty of MCs around <laughs> the yes. West Midlands Apache. So that's where this started. Tattoo, yeah. Maccabee. He makes yeah. a mean meal, <laughs> mean vegan meal. Yeah. I have met, in fact, all of them. Um, so how do you feel about the way that um, Wasifa Sound System has really influenced music here in Birmingham, but actually in the UK and all over the world? As a team, all of us, we feel good and honoured and we are glad that we maintain the morals from back then to now. And we hold fast to that because it's important that we ain't going to do nothing that I couldn't talk to in front of my mum, my dad, my uncles, you know, the elders. If it wasn't good enough for us to do, we wouldn't talk it and we wouldn't do it, if that makes sense. If we were comfortable talking something in front of especially like my mum and my friend's parents' mum, especially, because it's about the women, because they're the one that kind of grew, grows the children. I'm not saying the dads didn't, but the dads were more working at that time, back in the day. Um, most of the women were more at home and some had little jobs, but they still had to come in, look after the children, do what they needed to do. So if we can't talk what we're doing, that means we shouldn't be doing it. So they were basically. your barometer, basically, yes. weren't, weren't they? they were a guide. They were, they were like our benchmark. And as I said, I had lots of sisters around me, so I couldn't go on with slackness on the road. So was there ever, <laughs> like, was there ever a time when you, were, you actually were told by your sisterhood around you? Uh-uh. Uh, I would say lots of times, because they'll just do a spot check. Even for the little things that we could do, because they're there, we're conscious of it, even till this day. Even though you've seen me as the front man for Wasifa, and I said I mentioned all those men, Believe me, even this Monday, we've got lots of females around us that spearheads and does a lot of the behind-the-scenes things for us. Till this very day, my daughters, we got... Um, each one of us has got partners, so the partners are very much involved in it. And if we can't do something in front of them, we're not supposed to be doing it anyway. I so it kind of carries that. on through, yeah. Actually, that for me um, is just deep respect for... Mm. Humans yeah. and humanity. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And that's beautiful. It's living mm. your values through mm. your music and living your values full stop in life. Yeah. You don't often get that, do you? It gets compromised in the music industry. Very much, yeah, because, you know, like you say, what goes on out there, you can't really bring it home. You see things, especially before you go on stage, but you can't talk what was happening behind stage with other people. You just got to go out and do your job and try and make win people over you know and I think that happens in all walks of life anyway you know but especially in the entertainment world I do know where you're coming from lots of bad things happen in the journey in the back room and stuff like that but you don't bring that out in the forefront you just go and do what you do and present what you got to do positively and hope people take that part away from the event and it's not just music you know it makes perfect sense that you have this great Wasifa sound system, which has been going for five decades, yeah. you're known for, uh, you know, passionate about, but your role has spun out from music as well. I, I said the word activism in the green room, and you, you, you actually came back with a question and said, Well, what do you mean by activism, Satnam? What does activism mean for you? 
activism is to me several acts through us if it could be from the church side it could be from community side through our sound system because activism means what i'm presenting we gotta know how we're gonna present that you can't just ram things down just in case people don't know what ram means it means force things <laughs> sometimes i switch into a little bit of homegrown things you know what i mean yeah force things down into people's thoughts so you got to find a subtle way to bring it across if you're too forceful people switch out just like when we're teaching you got to kind of get the students on side talk communicate ask questions and i always look at it and we as a team always talk about it and discuss it we're here to learn each time we're playing out just like we're trying to teach people each time we play out we definitely take things away and we critique our next move you're as good as the last event, as we keep saying to ourselves. So I think I'm interpreting that as like activism for you is in the moment, the yeah. doing, and what also doing. the exchanging, the yeah. two-way, the two-way, that's important. And I suppose that then translates very easily into your teaching, because you, you lecture now as well. Yes, about 24 years now. <laughs> yes, September coming, 24 years. That's amazing. Yeah. In 1998, when I first got into teaching, then it was called South Birmingham College. It's now South and City College, Birmingham. Um, back then, my first job was to bring 15 targeted black men into education. A lot of our community, especially from the music side, was always, they can do the job, but one, they weren't getting paid. They were always gives a sub story. So talking with the principals at that time we said look we need young people to get into education because we need certificates my job then was to get 15 young black men into education the first year I got 72 and we've never looked back it wasn't just men at that time and it was cross-culture women Asian women white women um, black women and a lot of diverse men from that it's been like more 400 and something since that time that was 1998. That's pioneering yeah. in itself. What do you think it was about you? I came from the community angle. And then we could write courses. So I was writing the OCN to suit our people. And suiting our people, what you find is that a lot of people follow the Caribbean feel. You know, that, a lot of Jamaican style, the swagger and all that. Everyone's into it. Even though they don't want to admit it, everyone's into it from all cultures and all nations. So how I knew I would like to have been taught, you make things real. I didn't like history at school. I liked it when listening to the records. So we've done it that you give them our history and they write more. They actually write too much and you've got to start deleting. And with the Asian students, that happened as well. And with a lot of the Irish students especially, because that's what was coming to um, South Birmingham at that time. A lot of the A-level students were more going to Solihull and Cadbury College, you know, those six-form colleges. So we actually went out, we played music, and we kind of went around the city playing music and said, look, you can come and do this course. And we found a different way to engage them. So if someone wanted to do Brick Lane and couldn't enroll in January because they missed September, we'll take them on in what we were doing. And we'll do Brick Lane with them, not me, but we'll film them learned them a bit of media, so they were filming, recording, and I got one of the tutors from that side to let them do a bit of bricklaying. We went down around to building sites, for example, just the same as mechanics. We went to the mechanical places, 
for them to film them talking to. So that's how we engage different people. But they were signed up to media. That was back in 1988 onwards. Um, And quite frankly, does that still continue? Because quite frankly, we need it. Yeah, it kind of changed because policies always change. We went up, it was so popular that we wrote this lady called Pauline Bailey and me wrote the HND for the college and worked with UCE, now it's BCU. So they oversaw the course. So we could keep people going through to four different levels, you know, to get to university. Some's got their own businesses now and all that because we still see them. They come back and talk to the new students all the time. So you've kept that cycle going. Going, yes. Do you still keep in touch with any of your students? Lots of them. I mean, that must be that must be hugely humbling and gratifying all at once for you. Yes, the first lot, my son and a lot of their friends were, and my nephew were my first students. So two, two, a young lady, Amira, and her now husband Ben. She's from Yemen descent and is English descent. They got married. They still now run our. Wasifa archives and all our resources. And those were the first two students that I taught from that time. When I went to play on Galaxy, Choice FM, then Galaxy, they came with us and they worked with them as well. And now they're still working at the college. They do one does quality and one does all the media and music resources. That's a testament to you yes. and your personality and your, yeah. your honesty and loyalty and, and yeah. living, living real life. Um, yeah. And actually not many people in life can say that I told you it was a special soul and life is blessed. So who inspires you now then? <laughs> Just people in general. I look at it that I'm always learning and I'm always open to learn. So like this tonight, you're going to be inspiring me. The audiences give me a good feel factor. So I'm looking at them and they're inspiring me as well because I feel comfortable and okay. You've done so, so much. And, you know, these conversations are very much about finding more out the people behind the music that's coming out of Birmingham. I, I don't know if you can answer this question, but what's your most proud sort of achievement? It depends whose eye I'm looking at at that time, through whose eyes. Because if I'm looking at family, it will be my family. My mum, I still hold, and my dad hold a lot of their morals, so that's very inspirational for me. Um, if I'm looking at community... It's a lot of the community leaders, what I anchor on from back in the 60s and 70s, even people from different countries, you know. I look at that because I like to learn a lot about different countries. I like traveling and stuff like that. So that's my inspiration, I guess, you know. You must just love life. <laughs> Try to. Feel it might sound all nicey-nicey and stuff. There's been lots of struggles, but I, don't, I look at those struggles. I've, I always try to switch it. What am I going to learn from this struggle? You know, to take to go forward. I don't want to be walking down the road looking like I'm easiest way for me to say pop down or broken down and stuff like that. It just means mashed up, you know. I need to kinda walk and try walk proud, you yeah, know, totally. and to walk tall and stuff like that. Um because jealousy and envy is a serious thing that some people hold and they will, some people would like to see that, so I can't give them that privilege to see that. And I don't want to give them that privilege, you know, so i got to try and always put my best foot forward. So your music, your teaching, your activism, what sort of difference has it made to you and your life? I would like to think it's made me a better person, 
because there's different things on different journeys that it could be questionable to someone like, okay, uh, 2018, I got the MBE. And I know if that was in the um, <laughs> 60s and 70s, I wouldn't... You wouldn't have dreamt it. of it? <laughs> no, I wouldn't have oh, dreamt of it. it. Okay. I wouldn't have probably... Because it was a system... Then I looked at it as they're holding us down and there's a lot of suffering. I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but at the same time, talking to my family before I accepted it, just before my mum passed, she knew I was getting it. She passed the same year, but I saw the gleam and the look and the feel-good factor from her, just like her aunties and my aunties, which is her sisters and her brothers. And then I saw how the system appreciate someone with that title. Does that make sense? Other cultures does. And then I was saying, okay, if that happens and at the same time while people are suffering, people like me always are, back then were crying out for mentors, leaders that they could anchor on. And I talked to a lot of the elders, rasters in our community and they said, well, what do you think His Majesty would do? I said, well, I think I know His Majesty when he was in the UK, when Italy invaded the country and he stayed here with his family. They went to Buckingham Palace, so I don't see why I can't go to Buckingham Palace. You know what I'm saying? Um, before that uh, acceptance, I went down to Bath, where his house was, where they stayed, and we done a lot of charity work with the house and for the house and stuff like that. So we always looked at it, say, a lot of our community would say that, well, our Marastas shouldn't, the Commonwealth and all these kind of things, but I had to flip it. We've got a new generation that comes up that doesn't really look at our history, but they're looking at what's happening now and they need mentors and leaders. So hopefully I could be one of those, you know. Not hopefully, you are one of <laughs> so, those. You are one of those. Um, so how do you think the opportunities have evolved and changed then because of people like yourself, your team, your loyal followers? How have the opportunities changed for our younger generation? Back in the day, before I got into education, I went back to college 95, in 1995, so I was 30-something. So I went back about 16 years after coming out of school. Um, I think back then we were playing the music and like me and my manager, Jamai, we had a lot of conversations. People that was coming to our session, a lot more females. The females were kind of going on in life and doing their thing. They were growing, they were nurses, they were getting into someone doing dentistry, um, lots of important jobs, but the men weren't. So we were saying, that ain't really right. So we got to go out and do something. So following that, we were playing the music, started to do a lot of charity work. And from that, I would say that we kind of grew. So a lot of things come back down to the women in our community, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's a reality though. And... I think that's forthcoming and that makes us look at life a lot more subtler in the sense that if it's just pure men in a room, talk tends to be war. You know, like this warmonger type conversation. When there's a females in the room, it kind of lightens the atmosphere and they're more business minded. That's why Wasif has got a lot of women managing what we do, even though you see the men out there doing what we do. There's a lot of females in the background doing the thing to make us do what we do. Do you see any of those women coming to the forefront? Yeah, we've got Rankin Bev now. That's on our sound. She's one of our forerunners. 
And yes, we knew her from back in the 80s. And we always we work with a lot of women DJs, but we selected Ranking Bev with a lot of consideration. Her track record, it was very clean. Right. And that makes a lot of difference joining like um, most of the people in the sound of, of, of family members. And even with my friends, our road managers, like family members all surround. So if we're bringing an external person, they've got to have some kind of credibility and clarity and goodness about them. So we were working with her for all these years and helping her on her own journey. But she was a prison officer at one stage. She's now a medical officer within a school. So she deals with education. Myself is in college, so I teach my son who plays the sound with me, JB or Jelani. He is a teacher within the college as well. And he looks at young people taking up what we used to do, getting the neat students that isn't in education into college. Uh, my nephew, who is another front person, he works within the housing system, getting young people to make sure they're not on the streets, they're into housing, looking after them that way. And he was also a care in the care system before. So these are the four people that's kind of fronting Wasif as DJ selectors and broadcasters now. So I think it makes a lot of difference. And that's like three generation, four generation of people. Myself, then you got Bev, then you got my nephew, and then you got my son. And that is just, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's, that's about um, passing on and yeah. continuity and yeah. being relevant, I suppose, as well, because... Yeah. Young people have changed yes. and their sentiments and yeah. what they do and the way they do it has changed as well. But to see how the sound system has evolved, yeah. but to see it rooted in that family and, um, and that moral grounding yeah. it is really key to keep everybody on the straight and narrow mm -hmm. as, as they go through, quite frankly, turbulent years when you're teenagers with hormones flying left, right and centre. <laughs> What about Birmingham? How do you think Brummies and our diversity of heritage has influenced the music scene, has made it distinct? Because your sound is distinct. Um, music, as I said before, we played a little bit of everything, right? So Birmingham is like the centre of England, yeah? So we call it Central City. And because a lot of things, like this might sound ironic to people or it doesn't go like that really, but through my eyes and the people that I grew around it, Jamaican music plays a big part in pop music, rock music, soul music, gospel music, the way they deliver it now. If you go back into the 50s, 60s, 70s, the old style of even gospel around the church is delivered the way dancehall is delivered. They'll probably say it's more cleaner. But nevertheless, it's what it is. The pop people um, from Mick Jagger, they had studios and all that in Jamaica. The Beatles, they loved Jamaican culture. Anyone that you think of the BGs, you could say the police thing, they all had things to do with Jamaica and a lot more people. Ozzy Osbourne came from Birmingham as well, in Aston. That's where it originated. Just a stone's throw from where we grew up. Birchfield Roads, you grew up one side, I grew up the other side. But... Birmingham was always unique. Reggae was very influential. Jamaica is very influential. Style, fashion, you name it. Everyone buys into that culture, even from a distance, you know. So I'm saying it's very influential in the sense that Anzareth in Birmingham was called Mini Jamaica back in the day. And that's because, like, we, we talk like the Jamaicans, we talk Patois. You can't be in London and you're 
Jamaican descent, you, you're talking Cockney, it don't work. Certain <laughs> words just don't flow. So when we're saying what we're saying, we say it like we are from Jamaica and they thought we were from Jamaica and that's how the flex go. But I'm not saying anything's wrong with the Cockney trying to talk Jamaica, but it just doesn't work. You sound like an Eastender. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and if you go to Liverpool, you sound like, uh, what do they call them? Scouser. Scouser, yeah. yeah. So even though you've got Jamaican descent there, the, the twang is totally different. How do you feel That's about true, um, people's perceptions of Birmingham then? <laughs> because sometimes perception. like Birmingham gets it hard, I think. We do you get know? it hard. But even though we get it hard, a lot of people follow what comes out of Birmingham. And is that, I think Birmingham people need to actually recognise that and own it and talk it. But if you put it across, put it across in a nice, neat way, you know, you don't want them to kind of switch out, switch away from it. You need them to understand that like, this is what we are and a lot of people are buying into that. And we can only do that by showing them like how we play Wasifa. We know if we go down to London, our road manager, he likes to be in the background. He wouldn't even come up here and take a picture. He wouldn't even sit here. But if there's a concert at Wembley, believe me, he's involved in it because the the reggae shows won't go into Wembley unless he gives the nod and working on the production. The same with the NEC, ICC, the NIA when it was the NIA. Uh, all the O2s events, he does all the tours with the big artists, he manages the whole production. And he's from Birmingham. Yeah, you know him name, Jamai. <laughs> we, need get, we need to get him on stage as well, yeah, don't we? You know, There's so a lot of good I've stuff. I've got to talk about him because he's like the background, backbone of a lot of things we do, you know. And Birmingham is a great city. You know, I think it is. And I like London just for business, but I like to reside in Birmingham and I'm still in Birmingham. Some of the best people come out of it. Yeah. And you know what? It's just been so humbling to listen to you this evening, um, the contribution you've made to our city, the contribution you've made to your loved ones and your network with the Wasifa Sound System and long may it continue. I'm just going to round off with giving you a bit of a plug because you've got um, an exhibition coming up in the back to backs, yeah. haven't you, in Birmingham City Centre? Yeah, we're doing that. Um, it launches the 22nd of June at the back to back housing. We're looking at um, the front room, how it was set up, and also the back room. The back room is simulating at my mum's house, which is our headquarters, uh, how our sound system was set up. The back to backs, if you know, it's very small, so we'll put unique things in there and we'll be touring that. But we've got lots of different things happening. Um, I'm not sure. We've got lots of shows celebrating 50 years of Wasifa. It's not one event. It's the whole year. We've got Mikey Spice coming up this weekend. That's the kind of Jamaican lovers rock roll with a one-drop style. A couple of weeks after that, we've got the UK version of that, John McLean. We've got Norris Joseph, Frederica Tibbs, Peter Spence from Birmingham. Uh, in June, we're in um, London. Then we come back in July at Simadan Festival celebrating Wasifa's 50 years on stage. That's going to be epic. We've also got Burning Spear, who's come out of retirement, doing 10 shows, eight in Europe, two in the UK with Ari Sandy and um, Johnny Clark celebrating Wasifa's 50 years celebration. And that's going to be epic. Then we've got Jamaica in the square. It's not in the square this year. It's in Aston Park for two-day festival. And believe me, after that, it goes, it doesn't go down, it goes up. <laughs> so we've got a lot for the year celebrating Wasifa. Well, a happy 50th birthday yeah. to um, Wasifa and to your team. Yeah. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you to your mum and dad for coming to Birmingham in the first place. <laughs> yeah, thanks. For giving birth to you. <laughs> 
and giving this city a son that we are absolutely proud of. Um, keep carrying that flag, keep burning the light and keep shining. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to Jess for inviting me to do this. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>